Today we're going to be in uh, John chapter 19, verses 17, and the title of this teaching is Love That Gives its life. We're still in our That You May Believe series, so we're going to be there. But today we're going to talk about many of the Old Testament prophecies that are now being fulfilled at the cross. The Lamb of God is going to shed his blood, the blood that will take away the sins of the world. And this sacrifice is going to be completed when Jesus says, it is finished. Now the crucifixion is the most horrible death Conceived, And for those of you who have been around for a while and you understand what the cross means, I pray that you actually see the depths and the majesty of the cross today and what it meant for each and every one of us. And if you've never understood what the cross is and it's before you, I pray that your eyes are open to see the cross. It's so important that we see the cross, but what's more important is that we see our Savior that was on that cross and what he did for each and every one of us. How much that he loved us, that he died for us. Now, originally, originally, crucifixion was a Persian method of dying. And this was taken up by the Romans, and they made a special use of it as they were executing their criminals. Now, not normally, Roman citizens weren't crucified, but there were some exceptions to this rule. And this public display of agony may have been seen as a deterrent for other criminals. But Jesus was put to death in this cruel way. He was put to death in this cruel way. And Peter says it like this in 1 Peter 2.24. He says, He himself bore our sins and his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, we have been healed. Jesus literally carried in himself the full weight of our sins, absorbing our hostility, our humiliation in his death. While at the same time, he was assuring our salvation and our forgiveness from sins. And these events are so important for us to understand. It's not only from a historical point of view, but from a doctrinal point of view of what happened and why it happened is so important. What happened the day that Jesus died? The prophecies that were fulfilled by Jesus on the cross. And most important, those famous last words, it is finished. What those mean to each and every one of us. So if you have your Bibles, we're in John chapter 19, verse 17. And it says this. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha, where they crucified him. And with him, two others, one on each side, and Jesus in the middle. In Latin, the word Golgotha is a place of the skull. It was customary to have these condemned men on their crucifixion carry their cross. But as we learned last week, that Jesus was so beaten and so flogged that he didn't have the strength. He was suffering and he was unable to carry his own cross. In Luke 23, it says this, the soldiers led him away and they seized Simon of Cyrene. And they put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. Jesus was crucified outside the city between two other victims. In Hebrews 13, 12, it says, And so Jesus also suffered outside the city 
gate to make people holy through his blood. And it says that Jesus was crucified in the middle. He was one of the three. Jesus was crucified with two notorious thieves. And this only added to his shame. But also, it fulfilled prophecy. As we look at these Old Testament prophecies, this was fulfilled. Isaiah 53, 12 says, Because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. He was with the thieves. The point of this is, is Jesus was in the center of these three. And Jesus is the center of it all. He's the center of our life. When we look at this, do we make Jesus the center of our life? He is the center of our life. And crucifixion was a horrific torture. The victims would be stripped down and nailed to the cross with three nails, one in each wrist and one at their ankles. He was treated like a common criminal. Jesus also experienced spiritual and emotional agony as well. Why did Jesus have to suffer? Why did he endure this kind of pain? Why was this, the cross, so horrific? Why was this torture so bad? Why was it so shocking? We must conclude that this punishment was so horrific because our sin is so horrific. God sees our sin this way. Remember, Jesus was beaten to the point where he was unrecognizable. And that's what our sin can do to us as well. We can be unrecognizable to our family and our friends because of our sin. And we must conclude that God loves us that much that Jesus suffered for each and every one of us. Think about that for a minute. How much God loves us that his son would suffer like this. And Jesus was crucified for everyone to see. In verse 19, it says this, Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. Normally, one soldier would walk ahead of the condemned person carrying a placard naming his offense. And Pilate did this. I think he was doing this. He was communicating to everybody how pathetic they were as people, that this was their king. This is your king. This is how small you are compared to the mighty power of Rome. But the point here is there's a spiritual meaning to this. The cross, although it seemed to be a defeat, it was Jesus' ultimate victory. It was his ultimate victory to us. He defeated sin, he defeated death, and he defeated the enemy. In this case, his placard read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And it was written in three languages. And a lot of people passed by and they could read this inscription and Jesus was crucified in a place where many people were and many nations met. And there's a reason that it was three languages. The three languages, one was Hebrew, was the language of religion or theology. The second was Greek, was an intellectual or philosophy. And the Latin was the political or the law at the time. And all three of these the religion, the philosophy, and the law, they all combined together to crucify the Son of God. 
Let all those who view this know that Jesus is king. And John emphasizes this worldwide dimension of the work of Jesus on the cross because Jesus died on the cross for the whole world. He wanted everyone to see that, that Jesus died for the whole world. What's interesting about this is that without real, even realizing it, Pilate, I believe, wrote a first, the first gospel track. You guys know what a gospel track is? You know what a gospel track? I think Pilate wrote that first gospel track. And the reason I say that in Luke uh, 23, verse 38, it says this. There was written notice above him, which reads, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminals rebuked him. Don't you fear God? He said, since you are under the same sentence, we are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in the paradise. One of these thieves knew that Jesus was king by what was inscribed on that placard. And Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. And what was happening is there that this was setting the precedent for salvation by faith alone. It was by faith alone. Forgiveness flows from the cross. Jesus forgave that thief from the cross because of his faith. And then in verse 21, the chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, do not write king of the Jews, but this is the man who claimed to be the king of the Jews. Pilate answers, what I have written, I have written. They were protesting. Remember, these were violent mobs that were going on. And we'll read in Psalm 22, David says this, that he uses the image of animals to describe the persecution of our Lord. In Psalm 22, verse 12, it says, Many bulls surround me, strong bulls of Bashan encircle me, roaring lions that tear their prey, open their mouths wide against me. Dogs surround me, a pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. What I think David's telling is that when men reject the Lord, they become like animals. They become like animals. They don't act human. And now we'll see that this is one thing that Pilate does stand firm on. He's not going to change what he's written. He says, what I've written, I've written. And then in verse 23, it says, when the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them with the undergarment remaining. It was customary for these soldiers that were on duty at these executions to divide among themselves the personal items that the person had. It was usually just a few items, some sandals, a tunic, and the robe. But these garments, it says, were seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Verse 24, let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. John also refers to these actions of the soldiers as being a fulfillment of the prophecies. As we see Old Testament prophecies being fulfilled at the cross, in Psalm twenty-two eighteen, it says this, they divided my clothes among them and cast lots from my garment. John, John tells us that Jesus' tunic was seamless. 
and the soldiers threw dice or cast lots to see who would have it. Then John goes on to say, this happened, that scripture might be fulfilled. They divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garments. So this is what the soldiers did. The prophecies that Jesus fulfilled on the cross, the Old Testament prophecies that Jesus fulfilled on the cross. Jesus was silent. We learned that last week, right? He didn't say a word like a lamb before the shears. He was quiet. Jesus was beaten and he was crucified next to criminals. In Psalm twenty-two sixteen. Jesus' clothes were divided among the soldiers. Then Jesus was given a wine vinegar in Psalm 69. But everything in the Old Testament, all these prophecies were all pointing towards Jesus and his fulfillment on the cross of those prophecies. And I have a question for you today. Does everything in your life point to Jesus? Does everything about your life, does it point to Jesus? Do we keep our eyes on Jesus? Do we keep our focus there? Is the direction of our lives always pointing to Jesus? It's a great question for us to take a look at and ask ourselves that. And then in verse 25, it says, Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Witnessing all of this were these four women standing near the cross. Imagine, if you can, Mary's feelings as she followed Jesus to his death and remembered all of God's promises to her about her son. The faithfulness of these women is a testimony of the meaningful relationship that Jesus had with each one of them throughout his ministry. And it took courage to stand there during such hatred and ridicule. But I believe that these women were such an encouragement to Jesus as well because he saw them there. It says, when Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, and that's John, he said to her, woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple, which was John, took her into his home. Crucifixion allowed for some real expressions from our dying Lord that a sudden death would have prevented. He would not have been able to show them. Jesus, even at his death, had this incredible human moment when he took a moment to take care of his mother. Remember, Jesus' half-brothers, they weren't there. Nobody was there. These four women and John were at the cross. Jesus' brothers weren't there. Remember, they didn't believe until after the resurrection. They were not present at the crucifixion. And Jesus, as being the oldest son, had an obligation, a cultural obligation, to take care of his mother. And that's the beauty when we look at verse 26 and 27, that Jesus was taking care of his mother as well as he was taking care of John. He was saying, John, take care of them. And Scripture clearly teaches us the importance of taking care of the widows and the orphans. And Jesus is personally applying that in these final hours of his ministry. He's letting us know how important it is for us to take care of them, how important it was to take care of his mother, her care. And I looked at that and I thought, why did Jesus call Mary woman? Why did he call her woman? And I think what he was doing, this is just me, I think he was trying to bring her memory back about three years ago. 
with the wedding. When it was the first miracle, when he said, woman, my time has not come. But now what he's saying is, woman, my time has come. My time has come, and you're going to see me glorify my Father in heaven. The hour has come for his glory. And John includes this amazing tender scene in which Jesus, during all his agony, is tending to his mother's needs, allowing Mary to take John as her son and John to take her as his mother. As he was departing, letting John take his place. Jesus gives over the care of his mother to John. And I think what we're seeing here, that Jesus is assuring his mother's care to John for the simple reason that family forms around the cross. He's forming a new family around the cross for Mary and John. And for us today, it's so important that we form our families around the cross. You know, for us that have dysfunctional families, and I'm one of them, we can take a lesson from forming our family around the cross when we're lost. There's a story that tells about a young boy that there was this major city that there was a cross, a white cross up on the hill, and this little boy was lost in that city. And he found a policeman to try to help him find his family and get him back home. And they finally, they couldn't do it. They failed and couldn't find his family. And the boy said to the policeman, take me to the cross on the hill and I can find my way from there. The lost finding their way home at the cross. And that's with us. The lost finding our way home, forging a new family around the cross. A family is forged at the cross because that's where true families are forged and held together. Our worth is in the cross. Then verse 28 says this, Later knowing that everything had been finished and so the scriptures would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked it on a sponge in it and put it, the sponge on a stalk of hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus' lips. Jesus knew exactly what was going on there. He was in full control of everything. Remember that. All through his trial, he was in control of everything. In Matthew 27, 34, it says this. They, there they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. Jesus refused to drink this pain-deadening wine that they gave to most men that they were crucifying. He didn't want that. Jesus now knows that everything has been finished and accomplished, so he's asking for a drink. He says, I'm thirsty. And two things are implied here. Thirst meant that the agony on the cross was real and it was genuine, for the intense thirst accompanied crucifixion. And Jesus was enduring real physical pain for us, each and every one of us. That's how much he loved us. And Jesus now, he had just emerged from three hours of darkness when he felt the wrath and the separation of God. In Matthew 27, verse 45, it says this, From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
When you combine darkness and thirst and isolation, you have hell. Those three things combined are hell, and that's where Jesus was. There were physical reasons for his thirst, but there were spiritual reasons as well. And it says this in Psalm 42, As a deer pants for the streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, the living God. When can I go and meet with God? We should all have a spiritual thirst for God. Each and every one of us should thirst for that living water that only God provides. When we drink that water, we'll never thirst again. And Jesus did not think of his own needs. His thirst only came after he knew that this atoning work was completed. And why is that? Because Jesus put our salvation as his highest priority. Our salvation was his highest priority. He didn't think of anything else until that. He wasn't thinking about his own personal needs. So I have a question for you. Do you always put God first? Is God the highest priority in your life? Do we make him first? Matthew 6.33 says, seek first the kingdom of God. Do we do that? Do we seek him first always? Do we put him as a priority in our life? Like he put us as a priority. That's how much he loved us. Then in verse 29 it said, a jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked it, a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of a hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. Giving Jesus this sponge on this hyssop branch reminds us of the first Passover in Egypt, when the hyssop branch was used to put blood on the doorstops and the lentils as a sign of deliverance. And this was a sign of our deliverance as they were giving Jesus a drink of water. And when we think about that, giving Jesus a drink of water, do you ever think about giving Jesus a drink of water? You think, how could I give Jesus a drink of water? Jesus said, whatever you do to the least of these, you do to me. And we can give Jesus a drink of water by sharing what we have with others, being generous because the kingdom of God is so generous to us. You see what God did for us. He loved us so much. He was so generous that he gave his son. And we can do that as well. We can give Jesus a drink each and every day with our generosity and our communities. And then in verse 30, it says this. When he received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. It is finished. This is so significant. Jesus gave up his life. No one took it from him. He laid it down. The Greek word is tatelstai. And what this means, it's a cry of victory, a cry of achievement. The soldiers did this when they were in a battle and they took a city. They cried this out. And artists use this term when they finished a painting, when it's completed. And Jesus cries this out because our salvation is now complete. It's finished. He loved us that much. Jesus had faced all that Satan could throw at him with these temptations and the uh, sorry, the way he treated him. I'm sorry. Jesus' opposition was carried to the ultimate death. And the point I'd like to make here is very simply: it is finished. 
It stands finished, and it will always be finished. Amen? While it's true that our Lord's suffering was now finished, there is much more included with this dramatic word. While they crushed Jesus' body, they could not crush his spirit. And many of these Old Testament prophecies were now being fulfilled, and once and for now, the sacrifice for sin had been completed. When Jesus gave himself up on the cross, Jesus fully met the righteous demand of the holy law. He paid our debt in full. None of the Old Testament sacrifices could take away our sin. The blood of the sacrifice only covered the sin. But the Lamb of God shed his blood, and that blood takes away our sins. Amen? In Luke 9.31, it says Jesus is called deceased, which is in the Greek word is exodus, suggesting that the Passover lamb and the deliverance from the bondage is a deliverance of our bondage because of how much Jesus loved us. Jesus accomplished the work of redemption on the cross. We are free from the bondage of sin. Jesus was the victor, and so are we. Amen? We're victorious in Christ. In verse 31, it says this, Now it was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath, because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath. They asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus and those of the others. But when they came to Jesus, they found that he was already dead, They did not break his legs. The reason they were breaking their legs is what crucifixion does is the weight of the body lowers itself and it starts to suffocate. So they would push their legs up so they could breathe more. And what they were doing by doing breaking their legs was not allowing them to push up, allowing them to get breath so it would cause the death to come sooner. But they didn't break Jesus' legs because he was already dead. I love this verse in John 10, verse 11. It says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. No one took Jesus' life. He laid it down for us. Jesus, our good shepherd, laid down his life for our salvation because that's a love that gives a love for each and every one of us. What a love that died for each and every one of us on that cross that day. In verse 34, it says, Instead of one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water, one soldier pierced the side around his heart. In Zechariah 12.10, it says, Jesus' side was pierced. Old Testament prophecies being fulfilled. John saw a special meaning to the blood and the water that came from the wound in Jesus' side. This was an indication of intense suffering that Jesus endured for each and every one of us at his death, that Jesus had a real body and experienced real death. And I think there was some symbolic meaning to it. As I studied, I read this, and it comes out like this. The blood that gushed from him speaks of our justification. It speaks of our justification, and the water that matched with it was for our sanctification and our cleansing. The blood that takes away our guilt 
of our sin and the water that deals with the stain of our sin, our sanctification, because this soldier pierced his side. In Revelations 1.7, it says, look, he's coming with the clouds and everyone will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the people on earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. Forgiveness flows from the cross. In verse 35, it says, The man who saw this has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies, so you also may believe. That's important for us, isn't it? Because that's the time, so that we may believe that Jesus is who he says he is. In verse 36, it says, These things happen so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of the bones will be broken And another scripture says, they will look at the one they have pierced. Prophecy is fulfilled. It's remarkable that the soldiers didn't do what they were commanded to do, break the legs of Jesus, but they did what they were not supposed to do. They pierced his side. And this is huge. Why is this so huge? Because it fulfills the word of God. It's prophecy. The bones of the Passover lamb were not to be broken. Our Lord's bones were protected by the word of God. You know, I read this and it says, Socrates said this, God may forgive sin, but I don't know how he can. I don't know how he can when the sacrifice was his son, but he loved us so much that that's why he did it. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus forgives us at the deepest cost to himself. He died in our place. Calvary reveals the intensity of our sin against him. We all have redemption through the blood of Christ. But Calvary expresses the depth of his love for each and every one of us. And then in verse 38, it says this. Later, Joseph of Merimea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came to take the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier visited Jesus at night. And for all of us that don't have cable and just have regular TV, we know that's Nick at night, right? That's Nick at night. But Nicodemus came and he brought a mixture of myrrh and aloe, about 75 pounds. 75 pounds. Do you think they were prepared? Were they prepared for this? They were. But taking Jesus' body, the two men wrapped it with the spices and strips of linen. And this was in accordance with the Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and that garden a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. Now these two men were secret disciples who were hesitant to be seen with Jesus. But they asked for the permission to take his body. Before his death, they kept their belief and their faith a secret. In Romans 1.16, it says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first the Jew, then the Gentile. Our faith is not a secret, and we shouldn't live in secret. Let everyone know that the power of God that brings salvation to everyone. The way to motivate people is by our example of how we live. Not living in secret, not living in the darkness, but living in the light so people can see that. To serve Christ, 
not to make them feel guilty or try to play on their emotions, but to allow them, like Nick at night and Joseph, to see what Jesus had done for them on the cross, just like us, what he's done for each and every one of us. But upon his death, they came forward to give special attention to the Lord. These men were prepared with 75 pounds of spices. These men could have supported Jesus in his life as a better expression of their faith to serve him after his death. But the impact of Jesus' death had a greater influence upon them than his life did. And that's the same with us. The impact of Jesus' death, that our sins are forgiven because God loved us so much, has a great impact on our lives. Christ's death has that impact on us. Remember why Jesus was beaten and he was flogged, because he was identifying with sinful man. He was identifying who we were by taking our sins And we identify with Christ in his death. In Galatians 2.20, it says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Amen? Christ lives in us. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Isn't that amazing? That's an amazing love. This also means that our shame and our guilt are finished as well. The old life is gone. The new creation has come. In verse 42, it says, Because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Again, prophecy being fulfilled. In Isaiah 53, 9, it says, Jesus was buried in a rich man's tomb. At the very time the priest was sacrificing the Passover lamb. The lamb of God died on the cross for our sins. The Sabbath was about to dawn and Jesus had finished his work. The new creation because he loved us so much and it was time for him to rest. Paul says it like this in Philippians 2.8. And being found in the appearance as a man, He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus has fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law, and our debt is paid. It is finished. When Jesus died, he canceled our debt, everything against us. And what we should do is we should be making sure that our family forms around the cross that Jesus is the center of our life, that when we're lost, that we find our way home through the cross and we find forgiveness and love. Our faith is not a secret. We need to let everyone know about what Jesus has done for us so that he can do that for them. It's the power that God brings for salvation for everyone. The enemy never crushes our spirit because of what Jesus did for each and every one of us on the cross. In those last words, it is finished. It stands finished. And it will always be finished. Amen? Amen. I'm going to ask Rachel to come up. We're going to have one more song before we close. But I want to give you an opportunity. 
If you're not in the family of God, or if you've never received Jesus into your life, we want to give you a chance to come to the cross. Come to know that saving grace and believe that Jesus is who he says he is. He's our Lord. I want to give you that opportunity this morning. So if you want to take that opportunity, bow your heads and pray this prayer with me. Father, we thank you for your son. We thank you for the cross. And I know that I'm a sinner. And I repent of those sins. And I turn from my former life and walk with you in a new creation. Father, I believe that you died for my sins and you rose and are victorious over the grave and that someday as I receive you that I will spend eternity with you in heaven. It's not about anything I can do. It's about what you've done. It's about those words, it is finished, that you love me so much that I receive you as my Lord and my Savior today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.